What really annoys you? What are your pet hates? We've all got them. During this pandemic, many might say lockdown, uncertainty, the slowness of government to let us know what's changing. Of course, they can't. It all depends on what the virus is up to and what effects it's having. The way some people flaunt the rules quite openly and expect to get away with it. It's their right. Or the limited numbers being allowed to meet up at weddings or funerals. Oh, but then there's the Euros. Oh, that's another matter. We all have to get together for that, even if it's only to go all the way to London in a packed train to go to the pub there, as we didn't ever have tickets for the match. It says a lot about Scottish pubs. But for many of us, our pet hates might be the cold callers on the phone or mobile, wanting to sell us the latest things, trying to get money from us by claiming to be from Amazon, BT, HMRC, they all worry me. For how do elderly people cope with seemingly plausible stories asking for money in quite a backhanded way? Money that you owe. But one of my pet hates is the way that you give to charities, only for them to hassle you every time there's a new emergency, a new crisis, including a shortage of funds during the pandemic, as if you hadn't given them enough in the first place. If I've given careful thought to, to regular giving to various charities, Christian or otherwise, why expect me to change my priorities for giving because your charity needs money? Do the others not need it as well? And how well do you use the money? And do you pass my details on to other charities so they can hassle me as well? Some do and go straight off my list of charities to support in the future. On the face of it, Paul makes a good model here for getting money for someone else. It all looks, at first glance, to be about money. Is this the first example of a pastor promoting a stewardship campaign, looking to get money to help, uh, looking to get people to give more money to help someone else? In Clement, the Kirk Session have been discussing whether we should have a stewardship campaign. But a stewardship campaign isn't just about money. It's about how we contribute our time, talents and possessions, including money. But the Church of Scotland seems to focus particularly on the financial side, reflecting the current state of the Church's finances. And it was the major question put to the session as to whether we should have one soon. Don't worry, this sermon is not part of a stewardship campaign and I'm not asking for money for the church. But there are important principles underlying Paul's letter and concerns. First of all, in verse 7, he seems to be buttering them up for what's to come. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. The church in Corinth was, to say the least, a challenging one for Paul. It held many joys and many concerns for him. Paul had a difficult relationship with the Corinthian church. He was going to Corinth, but walking on eggshells. He wanted to make sure that by the time he arrives in Corinth, the church will have put aside the full amount of money they are going to contribute 
for the impoverished Jerusalem church. He was determined to press ahead and get them to complete the task. He doesn't just want to be fully and delightfully reconciled to the Corinthians. He wants them to share in the great project he has in mind, demonstrating to the Gentile churches that they are part of the same family as the Jewish church, uh, Christians in Jerusalem, and more important, demonstrating to the Jerusalem Christians that those strange, uncircumcised Gentiles who, like them, have come to believe in Jesus the Messiah, are fellow members with them in God's renewed people, the family defined by their faith in the risen Jesus as Lord. So he starts by reminding them how far they've come in their faith, what their strengths are. They're starting from a good base. They excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love. So they're in a good position. They can continue to grow. Paul, when writing early to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 to 4, had instructed them, along with the other churches, to set aside each week an offering for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. He now picks this up. They had promised to give a contribution to the church in Jerusalem, but they'd stalled. Either the collections had gone down or stopped completely. During a leadership course for work, we had to look at our personalities, how we worked, our roles in a team. I discovered then that I'm not a finisher, as they put it. I look into something in great depth, have good ideas, but don't press on regardless to get to the end of a project and move on to the next one. Fortunately, it only supplies to some things, not services and sermons. Sorry, but this is not as far as I've got to in this sermon. If you're doing something, you can't be half-hearted. Learning a musical instrument or gardening. There's no point starting and then stopping after a few weeks with the job half done. You have to finish what you've started. So it was for the Corinthian church. He wants them to finish what they've started. They're starting from a good base, so press on to finish the task. Paul is desperately concerned for the unity of the whole Christian family, and he has glimpsed, as part of his missionary vocation, the possibility of doing something so striking, so remarkable, so practical, that it will establish a benchmark for generations to come a sign that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians really do belong together. In this passage, Paul never uses the Greek words for money. He phrases everything differently in terms of grace. We normally think of grace in terms of the undeserved love and power which God showers on people in bringing them to faith in the first place and enabling them to live and grow as Christians. But here, Paul uses it in a different way, to refer to what God wants to do, not just in and for Christians, but through them. He had given grace to the churches in Macedonia. Under impulse from God, they gave money in an almost reckless generosity. 
But such was their devotion to God, to the Lord Jesus, to Paul himself, and to the work of the gospel and of church unity, that they found it in their hearts to give not only according to their means, but way beyond. Grace, he says to the Corinthian church, don't you want it as well? So he starts by complimenting them on where they've reached, reminds them of their promises, then compares them to the other churches to the north. Talk about twisting your arm up your back, but very carefully. Then he reminds them to give from what they have, not what they don't have. What counts is willingness, not the amount. Then he finishes by pointing out that one day the boot might be on the other foot and they need help. It all sounds like a promotional blueprint to me. But what's important is not whipping up human sympathy for a project, nor making people feel guilty, not encouraging social prestige by letting it be known they've given generously, but the work of grace in the hearts and lives of ordinary people. There are important principles underlying Paul's words. What matters first is the basis of their faith, how far they have come in their Christian journey. They excel in, speech, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness and love. But Paul now wants to see a demonstrable effect of this, faith in action, if you like, how they show their faith by their actions. He wants to test the sincerity of their love. James wasn't the only one to emphasize showing your faith by your actions. So as we would mature in our faith, we should increasingly see this in how we offer our time, our talents, our possessions to the Lord's work. In service, in our work with the food bank, in helping others less fortunate than we are, in helping those in need of money, time, care, in how our congregation supports other churches, other projects that need our support. Are we outward looking enough, both as a congregation and as individuals? And where can we make an unexpected and real impact? Secondly, Paul raises an important point about the early and not so early Christian church. They must share, there must be equality. Give according to your means, help one another as churches, Make sure one church is not in need while you have plenty. He refers to Exodus chapter 16, verses 17 to 18, when the Israelites were to gather manna. The Israelites did it as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, a small bowl, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. How can we help our neighbours, our community, our world? Are major global issues part of our prayers and concerns? Are there any practical ways we can help? Or can we influence politicians? 
What about the UK government's position on reducing foreign aid? If we all complained about it, would it not make a difference? Or what about equity and sharing the COVID vaccines? What would Jesus have us do? But the central point Paul is making is the most important one at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The example of Jesus should inspire the Corinthians and all Christians, especially when they recall that by that self-chosen poverty of the Lord, they have entered into an inheritance of spiritual wealth. And when verse 9 says, he became poor, it's not just that he was not rich, royal and splendid in the world's terms, but his willingness to leave heaven, to limit himself to an earthly body, to die for men's sins on the cross. Paul underlines here the beating heart of the gospel itself, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The core motivation for our actions must be love. God's love for us, and from this, our love for others. To live a life which reflects our faith is not a matter of carrying out noble deeds with indifference or for show, but out of love and wanting the best for each other. The prophet Micah says in chapter 6, verse 8, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And then there's Jesus' comments on the widow's offering in Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus also said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19-21. So what do our actions show about where our treasure is? As you grow in your faith, so you must grow in your discipleship, seeking to address the imbalances between people here and beyond. And underscoring this exhortation of Paul's is the reality that, for all of us, it is God who provides. We are day by day dependent upon his love and faithful provision. We need to remember the promises of the riches to come, both now and when we are with the Lord. Riches unbelievable. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Amen. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, as we come to you in faith, help us to show your love and care by our actions. 
as we live our lives, help us to store up treasures where it matters, in service, in thankfulness and praise. We give our all to you, who gave your all for us. Amen. <laughs>